Agenda 2063. Now, uh, this aims to accelerate development on the continent. So this MOU or Memorandum of Understanding is said to see one of the world's economic superpowers, China, develop top-notch quality infrastructure such as high-speed railing, uh, rail linking uh, all 54 African countries through aviation, road highways, aviation, and also it will focus on industrialization infrastructure. The African Union Commission Chairperson Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma and Mr. Zhang Ming, uh, the Special Envoy of the Chinese Government and Vice Foreign Minister of China, met in January to sign this ambitious plan. Now, to assist us on this uh, particular story, we have on the line uh, Sanusha Naidu, who is uh, the Research Manager of the Emerging Powers Project, which is based with uh, Fahamu. Fahamu is a not-for-profit organization committed to serving the needs of organizations and social movements that inspire progressive social change and promote and protect human rights. We also have Dr. Ross Anthony, who is the Acting Director at the Center for Chinese Study. Now, the Center for Chinese Studies is based at Stellenbosch University, serves as the most prominent and high-quality point of reference for the study of China and East Asia on the African continent. Now, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Ross Anthony, in terms of looking at this ambitious moment, look at uh, this uh, partnership between the African Union and China. Tell us a little bit more about the Memorandum of Understanding, Doctor. Uh, well, we can't really say that much about the Memorandum of uh, Understanding because it's uh, very vague at this stage. Uh, it was simply announced that this project was going to happen. There's no um, price tag put on it. Mm. Uh, often when uh, the Chinese announce these sorts of things, they give, a, they give a sense of what it's going to cost and also the modes of financing. That hasn't been included either. Neither has uh, the timeline uh, as to when this project will happen. And of mm. course, it's vast scale how it will be coordinated and those sorts of things. So at the moment, there, there isn't actually that much to say on the deal itself. I mean, when Kosozana Zuma was pressed, the only thing uh, that she could uh, confirm was that the African Union was setting up several committees to cover four key sectors of, of the deal, so be railroad, aviation, and industrialization. Mm. Uh, but other, other than that, uh, commenting on specifics of the deal is uh, difficult as there wasn't that much said. Mm. Uh, Sanusha, let me bring you in into this particular conversation, looking at these uh, memorandums of understanding, looking at this ambitious goal, that, uh, uh, looking at this uh, infrastructure of uh, high-speed uh, rail linking all 54 African countries, looking at the climate on the continent right now. Do you think this is a feasible idea? I think to a large extent, it's a quite an interesting timing of this agreement that the Chinese have come up with. I think for a long time when we've looked at Chinese investments in Africa, and particularly when we try to disaggregate it, we saw very much linked to individual countries, linking with, for example, bilateral investment agreements, mm. bilateral uh, infrastructure agreements with uh, particular countries. I think this question around whether or not we're seeing a much more continental approach to how they want to connect railways, etc., is a very interesting time where we, where we always asked, how does this affect a more continental approach? Mm. The question around whether it's feasible, whether it's productive, whether it's at the right time, I think we've always made this point that Africa doesn't have enough connectivity both in, in, in physical infrastructure as well as in, in infrastructure that links to ports and railways. If this is going to do that, then yes, it's going to be a wonderful in, in, initiative and venture. The question really is the management of the process. How do we know that the com- money that's coming in is going to be managed productively? There's going to be accountability of, 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 uh, of, of funds. Uh, who's going to basically uh, be bigger uh, recipients of this, of, the, of, these, of these initiatives and the money? Uh, I think we, we've seen this in a number of countries. For example, just l- last week, uh, the Chinese have actually finalized a high-speed train in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. This seems to be their modus operandi. This is the framework in which they work in. This is how they actually go into the, into countries to connect uh, transport routes and connectivity, etc. Whether it's in their parochial interests, I think we can't deny that. There are interests that the Chinese have, and we have to accept and we have to recognize those interests that no country in the world is always looking at beyond other beyond their own interests. 
and that's the nature of international relations and engagement. Mm. Uh, to, 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 to some extent, we've always asked the question around to how do we actually understand Chinese investment in Africa? Would we see this, now this MOU signed with the AU as the next stage in mm. China's Africa engagement? Do we see this? And it's quite an interesting point I want to make here is mm. that it comes at a time when this is going to be the 15th anniversary of the China-Africa uh, what you call this uh, forum on cooperation, mm. the FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, which is going to be hosted in South Africa towards the end of the year. South Africa is the co-chair of this of this platform right now, and I think to to that extent, it's always also been in the interest of South Africa in terms of its own continental strategy, its own vision around the the the, the infrastructure vision that they've always wanted to connect these kinds of things. South Africa has always wanted China to actually converse and convert their money and mm. invest in continental, if not regional, infrastructure frameworks and plans. We've seen this at the AU level. We've got to now ask how does this impact at the regional level and even at the sub-regional level. Mm. Well, we know that China is Africa's largest trading partner with bilateral trade, which is expected to surpass uh, 200 billion US dollars. Most people would ask, why is China so interested in investing in Africa? Dr. Ross, uh, Anthony, let me give you uh, just uh, your views there in terms of answering that question. Why is China so interested in uh, Africa? Well, as uh, you know, as China entered the market economy in the in the eighties and nineties and uh, uh, grew its industrial sector, it required uh, 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 the need to get more resources from outside of China. It stopped relying on its own oil, for instance, in nineteen ninety three. Uh, that's driven it out as well as uh, 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 trade and investments. It's part of this, what China calls its "go global" strategy. So it's not just in Africa. You've seen uh, Chinese presence now increase in Southeast Asia, and South America, even in the West. Everyone has had to deal. Uh, with China's uh, rise on the world stage. But Africa, uh, particularly in so far as, uh, uh, firstly, I say Africa is a, a, a relatively economically untapped region, and of course this, this makes it attractive to China, uh, uh, but also that uh, China and uh, Africa's relations historically um, have been one, especially in the socialist uh, period, of, uh, one of support for many African liberation uh, movements, which has given China's sort of politically organic relationship with many African states, which perhaps uh, the West doesn't share, uh, particularly from the point of view that certain African states feel somewhat animosity toward the West uh, because this is a colonial past. So China has really uh, used these things to uh, uh, leverage itself within Africa. Of course, uh, economically within China, um, not only do they need uh, uh, resources, which Africa is uh, plentiful in, but also uh, in terms of infrastructure, this ties back to the African Union, there's uh, many, many, uh, particularly state-owned enterprises within China, which require uh, contracts to keep going. And of course, within China, they've uh, they've built everything up to the hills. I mean, there's still areas which need uh, infrastructural development within China, but a lot of this stuff is now moving out of China. So mm. uh, Chinese uh, companies need work in other countries. So uh, when a Chinese company can uh, uh, broker these uh, sort of either state-to-state or deals, uh, or at this one with the African Union. It then, uh, what it normally does, will open up uh, to tender uh, any given uh, project to to a host of Chinese companies which compete. So in a way, uh, these sorts of infrastructural uh, deals with uh, Africa, of course they help Africa in the sense of interconnectivity and that, but they also help Chinese firms. Uh, That may be changing. Uh, Last year, uh, Chinese Premier Li Keqiang announced a new fund uh, uh, Chinese money, which will be available not only to Chinese companies but to, to a host of international actors. So we might see a, a shift in that regard. But then uh, the final reason I think why China has also show, shown such a great interest in Africa is politically. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of China's global trade, Africa is less than 4%. Uh, so it doesn't constitute uh, very much. But if you look at diplomatically at the kind of effort that China is putting into Africa, um, you see it doesn't tally up with the economics. So there's a sense that strategically uh, Africa is being earmarked by China uh, in terms of fostering future relations. And this is particularly within a a growing global, I don't want to say polarity, but a sort of new... uh, a new, glo- uh, a new global sort of club formed with BRICS and China leading and a, and a growing sort of anti-Westernism amongst this. Uh, certainly uh, uh, making friends with African states uh, helps on, on, in, this, in this global context mm. as well. 
Sasha, uh, just to look at uh, what uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Rosanthin is highlighting, do you have anything to respond to that? I think Ross has highlighted very key points around the China interest in Africa. I think for a long time we've noted that you know it started off as clearly interest that is going to fuel the Chinese domestic economy, fuel its patterns, its consumption patterns, and it's now evolved. It's evolved into a into a relationship around some of the issues that Ross has mentioned. I think more importantly as well, I think what we also have to start asking ourselves around the China-Africa engagement is as slowdown in in the economy takes place, you know, there's economic slowdown in the Chinese market right now, how will that affect um, the relationship with Africa? Mm. Um, and more importantly, I think from that kind of market perspective, uh, questions are being raised around, you know, to what extent should we continue to look at the kinds of the nature of, of trade between the two sides, uh, particularly between African states and China, and more importantly, are we seeing more value-added production and more value-added addition to the, the engagement in terms of market approaches and so forth. There's another area, I think, which is very clear that we, we tend to overlook and we need to actually look more critically around, and that is the number of Chinese, the number of Africans, sorry, the number of African migrants, the African traders that are in the Chinese market that are also fueling that economy in a different way. We always look at the macro picture, micro picture represents a very interesting dynamic around um, the nature of the engagement and how, added, how it has evolved over time. Um, and I think when we invert the question and say, what is Africa's interest in China? Mm. I think we're then going to start opening up these levels of engagement around migration, you know, movement of people mm. between Africa and China, the traders that are actually going into China, bringing goods back into the African market. We always have this view or this, 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 this structure in our head that it's the Chinese that bring goods into the market and actually flood the market with cheap goods. We also have to look at African agency and how African agency facilitates the movement of cheap goods from China into African markets. And that's the traders that are trading. So everybody's trading in a sense of what globalization has done. It's actually created um, interdependence. It's created more access to markets. Uh, and we're seeing these goods come in. The third point I want to make is the level at which we are seeing uh, the emergence of not just big, I mean, we're always looking at the big macro picture of Chinese investment in Africa, but we're also going to look at the Chinese migration and investment for, by, by traders in the African market. In South Africa alone, we're seeing the, 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 the spurt and the growth of Chinese and small, small Chinese traders investing in the market. We see a lot of Chinatowns, China malls mm. that are springing up across Gauteng, across KwaZulu-Natal, across the country. Mm. And those are very real uh, indicators of the kinds of interest that we see both at the macro and the micro level. Mm. Well, I want to look at the issue of uh, the healthiness of the relationship between the two because sometimes Africa can be an area where people just go to plunder the goods and move out. Is this relationship healthy? We'll deal with that when we come back after the break. On the line I have uh, uh, Sanusha Naidu who's the research manager of of the Emerging Powers Project, which is based with Fahamu, and Fahamu is a not-for-profit organization which is really looking at social movements that inspire progressive social change and promote the and promote uh, uh, protect uh, human rights. And I know that uh, uh, Sanush Naidu also is an expert on the, the relationships of China and Africa. Also on the line, we have Dr. Ross Anthony, who's the acting director at the Center for Chinese Studies. The Center for Chinese Studies is based at a university here in South Africa at the Stellenbosch University and it serves as the most prominent and high quality point of reference for the study of China and East Asia on the African continent. What are your views? We'll also hear from you so you can send us your views by SMSing us on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. That's plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. We'll continue this conversation after the break.
Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on Listen and enjoy Channel Africa Radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa Radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. You are listening to African Dialogue coming to you every Monday to Thursday. And uh, we know that today we're focusing on uh, the uh, signing last month of uh, uh, the African Union and China. They signed a memorandum of understanding. And uh, this is said to see one of the world's economic superpowers, China, uh, develop a top-notch quality infrastructure project, which is set to see a high-speed rail linking all 54 African uh, countries through aviation, through road highways, aviation systems, and also there's going to be railway systems that are uh, really introduced to see this actually happening. And also it's going to focus on the industrialization infrastructure aspects of things on the continent. But today we're also looking at the partnership between uh, Africa and China, looking at some of the trends, scrutinizing the relationship between the two, and also analyzing some of of the points of how this uh, relationship has been, especially we've seen it increase in the last uh, uh, 20 years or so. We've seen an acceleration between uh, the two uh, continents. But hey, we wanna we have on the line Sanusha Naidu, who's the research manager of the Emerging Powers Project, uh, which is based with uh, Fahamu. And also we have uh, Dr. Ross Anthony, who's the acting uh, director for the Center for Chinese Studies. Now, we've looked at the various aspects of this. But in terms of uh, it being healthy for Africa, uh, Dr. Ross Anthony, is this relationship good for the continent? Uh, Again, it all depends on how it plays out. I mean, we talk generally about whether the Chinese are good in Africa or not, but what it really boils down to uh, is looking at a number of different Chinese projects on the continent at the infrastructure level. And what you find is they vary from country to country and company to company. Uh, some are white elephants, some are highly successful. It all depends on uh, uh, the funding, whether what the projects are, are they being built in the right places, are local, local people being consulted, uh, to what degree is corporate social responsibility yeah. uh, implemented, are there environmental checks, are locals consulted with, these sorts of things. So it really depends, and, and there's examples where Chinese companies have done very well in this regard and other examples where they haven't at all. Uh, and so when you're talking about a... Uh, infrastructure project that's going to uh, take a, like span the entire continent, well, the first thing that I would uh, say is that there's obviously going to be a number of different companies involved from China uh, uh, and uh, involved in different states, different levels of coordination. So I'd say within this project itself, you could find a, a, a lot of varying quality um, in terms of uh, things implemented which are good and which are not so good. I mean, well, one thing I will say uh, within China that, uh, particularly in the West, people have not been really sensitive to is that China has itself been undergoing a kind of transformation of its uh, of its companies. In the sense that uh, even, say, 10 years ago, issues of, of um, environmental sensitivity, yeah. uh, la- labor issues, uh, uh, pollution, these sorts of things, within China were not issues at all. So when these companies... Uh, we're going overseas to, uh, to Africa and whatnot. Uh, they would just perpetuate the sorts of practices they would do back home. And then local NGOs in Africa would say, "Look how, look at the Chinese. What they're doing here is so terrible." Whereas, in the sense, this was just Chinese doing domestically, uh, doing abroad what mm. they would do domestically. Mm. But within the recent, uh, de- uh, within the last, I'd say, over five years or so, there's been a shift. Chinese companies are now increasingly obliged to use corporate social responsibility to, um, and particularly within Africa, what you find is that at a Chinese government level, the state level, there's pressure on comp- Chinese companies engaging in Africa to act in a more responsible way. Because at the political level, uh, China wants to establish good, solid, long-term relationships with African states. And, of course, some people make the mistake that Chinese companies and Chinese governments are the same thing and that this Chinese government can simply tell them what to do. 
that's not really true in the sense that many of these companies have got their own will and, and, and uh, do all sorts of things, and it's very hard for the Chinese government to keep tabs on them. So from a political level, there's certainly a push for Chinese companies in Africa to uh, 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 use better corporate social responsibility, be more sensitive to local labor laws. Uh, and certainly when I've met with Chinese companies in recent years, there's been more of an emphasis on trying to promote this side of things. So I think there is a shift both... Uh, internally and and within Africa. So uh, mm. again, it's 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 we mm. must be careful when we write off the Chinese as being bad in Africa there or good in Africa, whatever the case may be. There's a host of different actors mm. from state-owned enterprises, provincial enterprises, private enterprises. Then you have the Chinese uh, uh, governments and the embassies, and then of course you have your migrant uh, traders who who come in many under the radar uh, of the embassy. So it's a very a complex picture, and the, the way we can uh, deduce whether it's positive or negative is really by shining a light on a particular project mm. which a particular Chinese company is doing and see how that relates to the broader picture. Mm. So let me share your views. Uh, Dr. Ross Anthony says, hey, it's not that simple. It's not just on face value that you can say that, hey, the Chinese are not good for the continent. What are your views there? I agree. I think in any country, you know, you have to you have to distinguish between um, the various multi-stakeholders. Um, there's, there's various players in a in a country that sometimes don't often uh, conform to what maybe the country's rules and standards and regulatory frameworks are. I think what has happened with, with the discourse and the narrative on the China-Africa engagement is that we tend to get caught up in polemics. We tend to get caught up in a narrative that tends to kind of provide very broad strokes and broad, um, uh, what you call this, um, arguments about the Chinese in Africa. Mm. But, you know, what what, what, what Dr. Ross is saying is that he's saying that you need to start looking at different actors. So sometimes when we talk about the Chinese in Africa and we talk about some of the negative images that, that, that revolve around the Chinese engagement in Africa, it may not necessarily be state actors that are involved. It may, necess- it may actually be private sector actors. And I think some of our perceptions of the Chinese are also fueled by the way the media portrays the narrative. Because sometimes we assume that all actors that come from China are state-aligned. They're not. Uh, we've got migration. We've got actors that are coming in at the sub-national level who are not aligned by the state. Uh, as Dr. Anthony would know quite well, there's a number of delegations that come to South Africa wanting to invest in, in South Africa that don't necessarily come through the state channels. They are basically, we have relationships between Chinese provinces and South African provinces. We have relationships between Chinese cities and South African cities. All of this doesn't necessarily conform through the state channel of, of the Chinese state. So I think to a large extent, what we need to start thinking about much more critically is who are the actors, who are these players, what are they doing, and how does this actually conform to a broader narrative of the China-Africa engagement? The second point I'd like to make as well is that we have to understand the transformation of the Chinese economy, uh, and we have to understand how does that impact on China's own global expansion as a country and as a, as, as, as a global actor. Uh, we tend to overlook those kinds of, of, of narratives because we want to look at a bigger picture. The third point I think is very important to, to, to us to understand is there are certain positives that come out of China, and this is not to suggest that we uh, we, we don't don't recognize the, 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 the some of the negative impacts that China has. But I think there are certain positives that are coming out of China in terms of regulating state uh, companies. I mean, just recently or towards the end of last year, there was a, a Chinese company or a, a sector that basically a state-owned enterprise that worked with Global Witness, the Global Witness uh, NGO that mm. does uh, reporting on corporate activity, uh, looking at how they can engage in mining, mining safeguard, safeguards and mining regulatory frameworks around their investments. So I think what we have to be careful of is actually conditioning ourselves into little, in little uh, 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 what you call it, boxes mm. uh, and boxing ourselves into these narratives that don't explore the fact that there is a changing dynamic in China as well. Mm. And also, I just want to come back to this issue of uh, the Memorandum of Understanding that was signed last month uh, with conflicts, with corruption in both governments and uh, private business sector, a sluggish approach to infrastructure. And also, we sometimes see a disjointedness with the various regions 
do you think, uh, Sanusha, Africa is ready uh, to really have uh, uh, a move into this uh, ambitious uh, uh, space uh, that is uh, trying to be uh, very kind of futuristic? And I'm sure this is because uh, the African Union is starting to take a futuristic approach with this new Agenda 2063. Are we ready? There'll never be a time when we can we can say that we. I mean, I think what, what the problem we have with the discourse in Africa is that we always assume we're not ready. Mm. We always assume that Africa is not ready to take that step, mm. uh, and that I think is one of the biggest challenges we have: is how do we change mindsets about the receptiveness and the readiness of Africa to go forward? Mm. Um, it's one of the most interesting continents that I've seen in terms of how much of emphasis, emphasis, and effort there is on global on, on governance issues, mm. from the APRM to the Ibrahim Mo, Mo Ibrahim Index to trade index mm. and integration, from from the U, UNECA to the African Development Bank. There's so much of initiative on trying to get this continent right. Mm. And I think we, we have to start thinking much more positively that these are these are little steps. Yes, we may not agree with maybe the frameworks in which how these how they are structured. We may actually find certain certain issues and certain criticisms around indices, etc. etc. But I think the challenge is that we have to start thinking that Africa is ready to make the step. And you quite rightly pointed out there's Africa Agenda twenty sixty three and there's an alignment to that as well, uh, where there's small targets set every 10 years to see what we're going to be looking at. If you look at the outcomes of the last AU summit, which just happened now in January, and if you look at some of the outcomes of what they were talking about, it's very clear that they're looking towards a much more brighter future. They're looking towards a much more pragmatic future around mm. the AU and where the AU wants to position itself. And you're quite right in terms of trying to ask the question then, what are we doing to put things right? What are we doing to put things in process? There's, there's, a, there's a sense of having institutional uh, issues being put forward, but there's also a sense of what they think we need is a willing and an active leadership to be able to say, we're going to do this in a strategic way. And I think that's what we're asking, is how, 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 well, how active is our leadership and our agency mm. in mm. Africa to complement these institutional frameworks that we have. Mm. Dr. Ross Anthony, your views there. I think uh, uh, Sanush is, hiding, is, is highlighting some important uh, factors there, looking at uh, the, the fact that we have seen a trend uh, uh, in the past year or so of a change also in the governance of the continent, seeing some improvements in certain areas whereby we are seeing a sense of uh, uh, enthusiasm about the continent. Uh, yeah, certainly. And I mean... Uh uh, China is definitely uh, uh, dovetailing with this enthusiasm. I mean, if you look, I mean, within the African Union and with the, like uh, within uh, many uh, uh, sort of African bodies, there's a there's a big push towards uh, regional and even at a high stage continental uh, 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 linking of Africa, so as to uh, facilitate uh, trade and, and human exchange over borders and. Um, you know, within uh, within uh, the China Africa uh, FOCAC, the Forum on China Africa Cooperation, their their agreements, their their Beijing Declaration in 2012, uh, both sides uh, pledged their commitment to connecting Africa regionally. So they, there's definitely uh, seeing on the same page. And you know, this has already begun in uh, in East Africa. There's a project called Lapset, which is connecting. Uh, Kenya, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Burundi, mm. um, and it's a it's an initiative led by the governments of these various uh, countries. But uh, China is playing a very crucial role uh, in, in providing the infrastructure here in terms of the ports and uh, some of the roads and well. Uh, but and this is the interesting thing, and it might tell us something about the future project is that. Um, there are many other actors involved. So there's uh, the African Development Bank, there's European companies involved in doing bits of the roads and ports, uh, the other Asian companies involved. So what you're seeing actually is that these kind of a regional interconnectivity, but through a host of different donors and a host of different actors of which China is, is one. And to me, this mm. seems like a very sensible mm. way of, mm. of, 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 of going about it. I mean, the African Union has said how they need uh, more private uh, uh, money to help develop infrastructure develop, uh, development in Africa. So I think this announcement with China and this, uh, uh, at the continental level 
although very ambitious, I think that one of the roles in which uh, it, it might play out is to see it not simply as China providing this infrastructure, but possibly other players coming in um, mm. from within the African continent and, and elsewhere. And I think that this seems like a very sensible approach in a way in which uh, Africa can sort of uh, diverse, not put all its eggs in one basket, mm. but the Chinese rival play a crucial role, might be involved with a number of other uh, uh, actors. And certainly everyone involved seems to be committed to this idea of increasing uh, African interconnectivity. So I think that with the right attitude and capacities within Africa uh, and augmented with uh, companies uh, internationally, of which of course a key player is China, I think that uh, uh, great things can be done. Hmm. Well, we're going to wrap it up. I just need to take one more break. And uh, uh, moving forward, I just uh, I loved what uh, Sanusha was highlighting. And, and the word came out there that she mentioned, we need to be strategic. And moving forward, what would be the main uh, recommendations to make sure that there's transparency when it comes to projects like these? Because I'm sure it's something that we require to make sure that these things are, are taking place and respecting uh, the ordinary person. Uh, the ordinary African can actually access uh, the information about these projects and also uh, do they actually benefit the ordinary person like me or the ordinary person who's listening to this program. But uh, we'll deal with those uh, issues when we come back as we wrap up the program. South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, today we're looking at uh, the relationship between uh, China and Africa. We know that last month the African Union and China signed a memorandum of understanding that is said to be under the framework of the AU's Agenda 2063. We know also that China's foreign direct investment in Africa is also growing. We've been speaking about elements such as that. Uh, According to China, in 2012, the foreign direct investment in Africa reached uh, uh, $2.5 U.S. dollars. And so we are seeing that there is evident interest uh, from China into the continent. But uh, focusing on uh, this new memorandum of understanding, which aims to accelerate development on the continent, uh, creating a transport link of 54 African countries to aviation, road highways, and also uh, just uh, uh, focusing on industrialization as well in in making sure that that happens. But this is a long-term agenda. I know that uh, the uh, AU Commission chair didn't even want to give the deadline. They didn't even want to give the amount of money that will be invested into this particular project. But uh, moving forward into uh, this uh, particular agenda, uh, Sanusha Naidu, I'm sure this has to happen in a very transparent way. We need projects that actually uh, really uh, have a sense of uh, fairness and a sense of integrity in them, don't we? I think we have to basically believe that these things are going to happen because I think one of the big challenges for Africa right now is to actually realize that this whole boom that we've been through in the last several years is coming to an end. And the question is, what have we actually shown for taking the the, the benefits of that boom and translating it into industrial capacities that actually make us much more integrated, but also enable us to integrate into the global economy and contribute in terms of transactions, tradable goods, etc. So I think we've got to start building up our, our economies. We have a very diverse economy, 
of scale in Africa. We are very low base economies and so therefore we need to start thinking about much more critical issues around our industrial capacity and our infrastructure capacity and so forth. And this is where I think countries like China, South Korea, India, etc. have all kind of, and even Brazil, have all kind of opened up that space to say, well, we're coming in to, 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 to address some of the more deficient areas and weaknesses in Africa's landscape, which is infrastructure. But as, as Ross rightly pointed out, the question is, you know, you can create, you can build infrastructure, yeah. but if you're not going to maintain that infrastructure, yeah. Yeah. then what's going to happen in the next 20 to 30 years? Mm. Dr. Ross Anthony, your views to wrap up the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, an announcement of this scale, China needs to be uh, very careful, of course, in light of its image uh, in Africa. There is a very strong spotlight on what China does in Africa. Its uh, critics are very sensitive to pounce on any uh, anomaly. So in this sense, a deal this big and this wide-ranging, I think from the Chinese side, they need to uh, make make really sure that, uh, you know, that the, 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 the deals that are happening are, are transparent and that um, they're available to, to scrutiny and that um, uh, 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 issues such as environmental and labor issues are treated very carefully because, as I say, uh, the, the <laughs> particularly Western uh, media will be very quick to pounce on anything. That is, so I think, in a way, it's an opportunity for China to to really show its progress in uh, in Africa, its commitment, but also how it's evolved and matured in its engagement with Africa. Uh, from the African side, of course, I mean, um, as, as with so much other uh, instances of Chinese interaction with Africa, a lot of it, uh, it boils down to how African nations deal with this. Uh, deal. Now, of course, the main problem is uh, interca- uh, uh, how is this going to be coordinated? The African Union, which uh, um, uh, politically it will test the strength of the African Union and in, in, in how far it will be able to coordinate this centrally, or perhaps it will be devolved to regional organizations. And of course, the regional organ- uh, economic communities, such as uh, uh, SADC, um, the East African community and so forth, uh, uh, which uh, have also been criticized for not uh, being able to enforce their, mm. their identities. They, they need to, I think, uh, this this will offer a very good opportunity mm. to strengthen regional economic uh, communities. So they will also need to, to play a very strong role. Uh, and uh, f- uh, finally, I would say that uh, part of this uh, d- deal uh, included the issue of industrialization. And I think... But this is really crucial of the sort of future of the China-Africa engagement. I think one way in which it could play out, which would be very beneficial, was in terms of further industrialization, because that was added value engagement, where mm. sort of taking out resources isn't. And, of course, with China's domestic economy, things are becoming more expensive there. There's talk of shifting industrialization out of China, possibly to Southeast Asia. Mm. The question is, can Africa become a... Uh, a, a an attractive destination for mm. this kind of uh, uh, industrialization. So I think for the long-term, uh, African players should definitely uh, uh, have their eye on this as well as, as a way of uh, creating a more sustainable uh, engagement. Mm. Well, thank you to Dr. Ross Anthon, who's the acting director for the Center for Chinese Studies. Thank you as well to Sanusha uh, Naidu, who is uh, the research manager of the Emerging Powers Project. She's based at uh, Fahamu, which is a non-profit organization. Now, thank you both for giving us those insights on that relationship between Africa and China. Hope to speak to you both uh, very soon. Very interesting conversation there. Looking at uh, the relationship between China and uh, Africa, we know that the African Union and China signed a memorandum of understanding looking at uh, accelerating development on the continent with that uh, issue of uh, linking uh, uh, Africa through a a top-notch infrastructure transport system. So that's very interesting indeed, very ambitious. So we hope that that does actually take place. But the time right now is 11.40. Central African time. Let's move on to our business news with Wisani Matebula.
Good morning, thanks Benjamin. Zimbabwe's new 15% export tax on raw material will cost Anglo-American platinum about 10 million US dollars a year. Zimbabwean governments first proposed the tax on unrefined platinum in 2013 in an effort to push mining companies to process the metal domestically. It however late last year said it will postpone the hike up until January 2017 to give miners time to build the smelting and refining plants. Namibia could have been uh, prejudiced of millions in tax revenues this after 24 wealthy nations uh, nationals reportedly stashed away more than $3.8 million in offshore accounts held through international banking giant HSBC amid tax evasion claims. According to secret banking files obtained from the French newspaper Le Monde, a revealed by the International Consortium of uh, Investigative journalists, uh, 24 clients connected to Namibia by birth or residence operated accounts opened between 1978 and 2004. Freaky reports from Namibian capital Vendhoek. The revelations come as Namibia lost billions of tax revenue in the past decade after companies, individuals and criminal organizations transferred nearly 60 billion Namibian dollars. According to the Global Financial Integrity Group, Namibia ranked 166th on the leaked HSBC list of Swiss bank account holders, with nationals from neighbouring countries also on the list. The highest amount of money associated with a client connected to Namibia is 19.6 million Namibian dollars. Congolese mining companies say the government's suspension of negotiations with them over new regulations could jeopardise investments. DRC Chamber of Mines say that uh, the government had unilaterally suspended consultations last week and sent a draft to Parliament without giving the Chamber a chance to see the final text. The industry is opposed to proposed increases in royalties. The companies pay the state as well as other aspects of mining regulation. And Guinea aims to launch a bidding round for up to 25 offshore oil blocks this year. This is the country seeks to lure investment even as it continues to battle Ebola. Following successful exploration in Ghana, which began pumping oil in 2010, several other West African nations are hoping to join the ranks of oil producers. Guinea is better known for its vast deposits of iron ore and bauxite. Speaking about iron ore, South African Kumba Iron Ore reported a drop in full-year headline earnings. Headline earnings per share is the main measure of profit in South Africa and excludes certain one-time items. Kumba says crude store production is focused to recover slowly this year due to weaker growth in the Chinese economy. Financial indicators, uh, the US dollar trading at 11.53 South African rents, 9.45 Botswana pulas and 6.56 Zambian quatches. It's also trading at 0.65 against the British pound and at 0.88 against the euro. We move now to commodities gold $1,242, platinum $1,219 a fine ounce, Brent crude oil has gone up now to $57.65 per barrel. That's how it's looking this hour back in an hour's time with another update. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Tamikuza now joins us to give us our sports news. Welcome back once again. Let's start with soccer. Egypt's cabinet has suspended the National Soccer League until further notice after 22 fans were killed in clashes with police and a stampede outside Cairo Stadium on Sunday. 
A witness say police fired tear gas into a narrow corridor full of fans leading into the stadium and setting off a stampede. Reader Edward is the managing editor of Daily News in Egypt and he says that there were signs of trouble long before he got to the stadium. The first thing that, that, that struck me was that a lot of people were moving away from the stadium, which, which sounded weird to me, it looked weird. Um, and um, when we walked towards the, the stadium gates, the, there were a lot of ambulances, a lot of police, also military vans. Um, we also sort of burned police car, so the, the, the atmosphere was, was definitely very tense. Celebrations continued in Ivory Coast yesterday after national football teams' victory won in on penalties over Ghana in the final of the Africa Cup of Nations. Celebrations continued throughout the night and Vuvuzelas were still being sounded yesterday while Ivory Coast's flag could be seen on every minibus and taxi. I'm so happy. We've been running after this cup for so long and now we are happy. We are happy. We finished. The only thing I was doing I was just praying, praying, praying. Even the one when uh, 2-0 down, I was still believing. I don't know why, but uh, I had to believe that like we was going to win it. And then uh, by God's grace, we won at the end. This is very, very painful defeat. Once the penalties, we were ahead. I've already told my people, we are lifting the cup. And now in local football, Mamelodi Sundowns coach Pizzo Masimane says he will grind results out of the second round of the Absa Premiership race in order to defend their title. Masimane, who guided his team to a second position, is chasing log leaders Keza Chiefs by 15 points. Masimane says they will use the same method they did when they put Amakosi under pressure last season to become overall winners. And I've seen Bayern having the biggest lead and coming back from a recession and got one point out of six and losing five points. And that was two weeks back. And I've also seen uh, Supersport United coming back from number two on the lock and finishing second on the lock. Year 2001. I've seen Mamiori Sundowns coming back from 11 point and win the league last year. I don't know what I will see this year. Chiefs have been in fine form this season and are yet to lose a game after 18 matches with 46 points. Kaiser Chiefs coach Stuart Baxter says that the race has turned from physical to psychological war. Once there's some pressure brought to bear, if you can't handle it, then, then you can crack. And by the same token, that if, if a team that's 15 points behind drops points and it becomes 18, then they can crack. Their will and their belief can crack. So I think whether it's 10, 5, 6 or 7, it doesn't really matter. It's going to be about performances. It's got, we've got to perform. And if we do that, then I think we'll keep people at arm's length. And now in rugby, for the second year running, the South African rugby franchise, the Sharks, will start the Super Rugby season with a new coach and the mantle of South Africa's most likely championship contenders. Jake White led the side to the top of the South African Conference in 2014, but not beyond the semifinals, as they slipped to defeat against Crusaders in Canterbury. Finally, the South African protest decision not to take a sports physiologist to the Cricket World Cup could put an extra pressure on the team. This is the view of Professor Peter Kruger, who is the head of the Institute of Psychology and Wellbeing at the University of Northwest. Over the years, the South Africans have developed a reputation of chokers after consistently failing to perform well in important World Cup knockout games. A lack of mental coach could also put unnecessary extra pressure on skipper A.B. De Villiers. That's according to coach Peter Kruger. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Benjamin Moshatama. Well, that's how we end the program today. We're going to end it with the proverb of the day. This is a Congolese proverb. I love this one. It says, the throne upon which the chief is seated does not shake. Let me say it again for understanding. The throne upon which the chief is seated does not shake. I love that. I don't think it's just for chiefs. I think it's for anyone who's pretty good at whatever they're good at. And if they own whatever they're good at, they will actually maintain whatever they are good at. So 
I think it's something that you can take hold of. Everyone has their own authority in terms of what they're good at. So, hey, if you have your own seat and you have your own throne, something that you're really good at, hey, sit on that throne, own it, do the best that you can, and your life won't shake. You'll be kind of consistent in the things that you do. Because some of us just do things that we're not good at, and that's when life just takes us in a direction that we're not supposed to go to. So let's say that one again. The throne upon which the chief is seated does not shake. Remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Interact with us via Facebook. We've got a Facebook page called Channel Africa or tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or SMS us on plus 27823325905. We end the program with Papa Wemba. This one is titled Salakeba. Oh, 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 oh,